0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 144th of Korea Podcast. Our today's guest is Mr. Mike Story. He's a sculptor and model maker of sci fi ships, dioramas, and sculptures from Bristol, United Kingdom. Now, before I get into the first question, I need to also mention something that in the captions below, you can see like in the for contact section, there's his Instagram, there's his uh, link to his websites, and also a link to his shop, which he is uh, put some of his like, you know, the Amazon models for sale. So you can, you know, if you're interested, you can check him out as well. I needed to, you know, just give that shout out in the like the beginning of the episode, so no one misses it out. Now with that out of the way, let's jump into the first question. Give us a little introduction on how we got into the world of visual arts and design and just all of this madness.
1: Um, well, I've spent the last 10 years working as a set designer for theatre, and that was my sort of professional introduction. Um, I, I think when I was um, a teenager, I had that sort of moment where I didn't quite know what I wanted to do, but I knew I was interested in... Uh, art and I've always I've always drawn, I've always been involved in making things, I've always tried to do creative things. So by the time I got to that point when you're sort of 15, 16 and having to start making choices about what you're going to do with your life, think about university and things like that, um, I knew that it was either related to art or theatre, which was sort of the two big things I was interested in. And so... When I was at school, I was doing very well with those. They're basically the, the only project, <laughs> subjects that I did really that well at. And so when I applied to university, I considered doing art, but I figured that doing art would always be something that I do in my own time uh, creatively, whereas with theatre, I thought it was something I could uh, really practice at and benefit from uh, further education. So I went to university. I went to Leeds University to study uh, English literature and theatre studies, which was uh, a very sort of holistic course about it wasn't it wasn't theatre practice per se it was a variety of modules where there's the history of theatre and its uh, different forms of theatre and making theatre and all those sorts of things and whilst i was there i started getting very interested in i made a lot of theatre i performed and i started designing sets and i think that was when I started getting involved a lot of puppetry and other um, physical making things, basically. And it started to dawn on me that there was a way that I could combine the two. So use, doing something involving theatre and, uh, and art as well, but combined together. And so when I came towards the end of my time there, I applied for several design courses. Uh, and I took a place at Bristol Old Vic here in Bristol. Which is a, a, a well-known theatre school in the UK and has uh, uh, really wonderful courses for acting, but also a lot of very good technical courses. And um, the theatre design that course there is very hands-on, so it just meant that I was doing something artistic. But I think because I'd always have been a bit nervous about the idea of just going out there and calling myself an artist, it meant I had a practical, I had a practical reason to do creative and artistic things. And that's really what kept me through for the last um, nearly 10 years or so since I graduated from there. And then since there, it's sort of taken its own interesting path and it's sort of weaved its way into other things. One of the things about theatre design is um, we uh, express a design through a model, through a physical 3D model made out of card and paper and uh, other variety of materials. And so model making was central to what I was doing, um, and so that was something which I then continued as a passion in my own time. So that sort of led me to doing the sort of dreamy ox project, which was supposed to be a side project. And has now in the last couple of years become more of my, uh, main focus, uh, aside from theater.
0: All right, and well, I mean, you. All, uh, we kind of talked briefly about it before we started recording about, like, you know, how we got into model making and you know, making dioramas and sculpting and all that stuff. Um, but I was wondering, like, you know, your main branch of designing, you know, as I said in the introduction, right now, like, you know, it, based even on the stuff uh, we can see on your website and um, your Instagram, is basically making sculptures, dioramas, and you know, models and stuff like that. So that so we know that's your main thing that you're going on going with. So tell us, how did you, you know, you know, because as you said, prior to this, you were a set designer at theater, then, you know, Corona hit the world, then, you know, everything shut down. But could you give us a full story of how we got into the world of dioramas and model making and all that stuff? Sure. And Um, just one thing, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt, but just one thing to also add, could you also please tell why you didn't go to digital route for 3D modeling?
1: Um. That's that's funny because I do need to. Uh, I'm aware that I need to do more digital modelling, and frankly, that's something that now when when I trained in theatre design, I trained to use AutoCAD 2D. But when I started, we were they were still I still got trained to draw a theatre ground plan on paper with you know with a with a pen and all that, and then we started using AutoCAD, and now no one would. Most people, um, certainly from my uh, generation of designers and anyone coming below, they don't go near a piece of paper. They just do it digitally, and using three D resources. I'm learning more and more of those. Um, I guess, I mean, I, I I was never I felt particularly computer savvy when I was younger. My brother's very computer savvy, and he sort of took over all of that stuff. And I just enjoy doing things with my hands and being practical, and. I think I had this kind of incorrect idea that they were sort of you—you you were either quite technical or you were either quite practical with your hands, that sort of thing. And what's interesting now is more and more of those tools are becoming accessible to everyone. So, but going down the digital route, I just—I don't know. I think I remember when I when I when I was first training in Leeds, there was a program where you could design sets in. Uh, it was a program called. WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get and you can create the space and you can look through it and you can do all that sort of thing and those design tools have become more and more sophisticated and people generally are doing amazing things with those i i think i'd felt at the time that i mean certainly then it's got much better now because you can artificially light them really brilliantly and you could do all these things but it didn't for me a didn't have the practicality Of being able to literally jump in and just rip up a piece of paper and stick it in the model and say, "Do I want it to be this big? Maybe. What if we make it this big?" And I could rough it all out in the model very easily. But also, uh, those digital tools just didn't. I don't know. There there was just something about the physicality of it being there in front of you. Just there's something about miniatures because when you see a piece of digital design on a screen it's sort of it's not really in a miniature scale it's in a one-to-one scale because you choose how big or how small you want it to be you know the camera's like your eye whereas with a miniature in the real world you know it's a miniature it's it has a fixed scale and it's you know all these things I'm saying to some degree sound like negative things but for me that was always kind of interesting it just meant that you were sort of just focusing on the world of the play and telling the story and but yeah honestly the 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 notion of it being oh i should do this but in a digital route just didn't really seem to be it it never really occurred to me that that was something i should do or anything it was sort of i was just sort of following the way that things went with um theater design and now obviously i'm doing um the sculptures i'm making and the way i'm working with my pieces it would be impossible to do the whole thing digitally because it all starts with a physical object. I don't know what I'm going to make until I find the thing that inspires the piece I'm going to make. So, I do use some digital elements. I laser cut pieces occasionally if I think I need a little thing. I can do that and uh, have a laser cut here in the studio that I can use. So, those sort of tools are amazing. And I think probably the next one that I'm going to try and crack is 3D printing because you know I think if I miss the boat on that then it's just that's going to be a standard thing well it already is a standard thing for so many things so 3d printing's the next thing but in terms of designing completely in digital format i i don't know i think i think it's i think it's a really really wonderful format it's something that i would have to probably embrace wholeheartedly to a degree that um I don't think I'd be able to do it justice, really. I mean, I I follow really incredible digital artists on Instagram, people who do really fantastic stuff, and I look at what they do and go, yeah, I don't think I can do that as well as you can. So, um, yeah, I just like noodling away with my bits and pieces here. What can I say? (laughs)
0: <laughs> All right, and well, I mean, speaking of like you know, three D modeling and stuff like that, I need to quickly mention something because I think it's also going to be interesting for you as well. Um, on episode hundred and ten, like I think I re- I uploaded it on October, late October, like the last October, I interviewed an artist, an artist called Gavin Manners. He's an concept artist at Hatemark, but he's actually like you, a. a a serious, he's one of his serious hobbies is also modeling and 3D printing, like doing makes and all this Warhammer 4K and robots and makes and not just Warhammer stuff, like just the whole hobby. You know, do you know how it is? Yeah. Like, yeah. especially, he does a lot of makes and stuff. And so, I think you should also check his stuff out, like, if you want to get into 3D printing and stuff like that. And you know, even before the podcast, I asked you, is Newcastle and Bristol near? That's why like ask this because he's from Newcastle.
1: Aha, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh definitely no I definitely check it out there's there's I mean this thing now that the the doors are open to um, you know incredible artistic uh, uh, you know incredible artistic practices and I think that the 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 direction of travel with all of these things the technical things is how can it be accessible for everyone there's a company um, based here at puppet place called uh, Rusty Squid and one of the central um, uh, ethics behind the company, um, David McGarren, who's a really incredible performer and maker, and they make uh, machines and robots, but they're all intertwined with performance as well. And everything that we do and everything that I do is sort of, it, it stems from the idea of performance and storytelling. One of the things that he makes really clear is there's for years this idea that. Oh well, I don't use technical things, digital things. I don't use computers or what have you, or that somehow if it's done in a computer that it's less personal. It's like if I make a piece of sculpture by hand, like a clay sculpture, that's very, uh, that's you know that's that that comes from a human and therefore it's very uh, you know very engaging in a sort of human level. But if it's made by a computer, oh, it's somehow kind of cold and you know it's not as engaging in the same way and. Uh, what's, what David makes clear is a computer, you know, a digital thing is just a tool in the same way that a scalpel is a tool. It's a much more complex tool with many different facets to it. But the way you use it and the human uses it is the, uh, is the way that it creates these, you know, amazing things. You tell it what to do and it can do all these things. So actually, if we're scared of, you know, understanding how those things work and say, oh, well, that's just for, you know, engineering purposes or whatever, whereas... This is for art, quote unquote. Then, you know, artists are always the people who then pick up tools that are designed for one thing and say, "Hmm, I wonder what this can do." That in a way that is not what it was originally intended for, but makes something new and interesting, and uh, you know, breaks open the mold a little bit. So, uh, so yeah, I think that um, you know, for for my work as well, digital tools are they're, they're they're things which are just sort of once you once you crack that code it makes life a heck of a lot easier you're sort of doing things in a way that you uh can cut out a whole number of steps that you might have had to do otherwise but it does take a bit of practice
0: yeah and well here's the thing like the main reason i like you know like i was kind of interested in your work was because of course the main thing that the main actual reason that i invite people on the podcast is because it if I see someone who is like having like, it shows that someone has some creative juice in their works and they're doing what they do, whether it be set design, whether it be like model making, whether it be like landscape painting, I don't care. I like to talk with them, you know, just to see how their stories. But another main reason that I was super excited was the subject of your, like, you know, the stuff you made that sp- different, like, you know, with this kind of sci-fi spaceships, this kind of like, you know, yeah. kind of, I think, I, I don't know, there's a lot of subgenres to this. Like there's, you know, cyberpunk, there's, no, no sorry, not cyberpunk. Uh, steampunk, there's like, yeah. you know, post-punk, there's, you know, all that stuff. And like, you know, there's like another artist that's that, uh, that their works, like he's actually a digital artist, Ian McQueen I don't know if you know him.
1: Uh, I, yeah, he's an inspiration.
0: Yeah, Like, I mean, it was obvious, like, because uh, the, the styles look so similar and I personally love that style. And mm. that's why I was kind of interested to ask you. But here's what I, what I want to ask you because of this. What is the main subject of your artwork? I mean, regardless of like, you know, like, do you have a whole world a universe built inside your head while you make this new dioramas and sculptures or you just go freestyle and see what happens?
1: Um, yes, it's it's a, it's a bit of both. But when I started making my pieces... Um, I got inspired by certain things that I thought would look interesting visually. I mean, I was I was sort of always into sort of sci-fi stuff and sci-fi aesthetics from media and films and stuff that I was consuming. And so when I was making things, I, I started making these kind of huts on stilts and I thought they were just really interesting. And I thought I could make a whole village of these. And I had this thing for a while that I wanted to. I, I would get this obsession with one thing, and want to make loads and loads of it. So I started making these stilt huts, and then, and then later on, when I was making the sort of sci-fi floating ships and things like that, people would say, "Do these exist in the same universe?" And I go, "Well, I it's not. I don't know. I don't really. I sort of wanted to leave it open for interpretation." But then, the I, I, I started realising that I, I had my own sort of ideas about how these things were, um, you know, where they fitted within a world or a universe. And maybe I should start making that clear in my pieces. What I quite like... I mean, f- for me, all of this sort of stuff I do is a, is actually a storytelling thing. It's You know, people are natural storytellers and when they look at things, and especially when they look at dioramas or miniatures, they want to tell themselves little stories about, you know, who lives there and what does this thing do and what's it for? And, and people really like to sort of get under the skin of those things. So um, f- for me, the moment where I sort of cracked it and I – embrace the idea of it all being part of an overarching storyline was i was trying to think in miniatures there's an idea of what's right or what's wrong so for example in scale you know do i build this at 1 to 12 1 to 35 1 to 25 1 to 50 and if you take something that is a model making practice but is done less as um less for for making sculpture um as pure art and more as a hobby you know something like model railroad or um you know or or warhammer or something like that the the scale has to be the same because it doesn't make sense if you have your little characters who are sort of this big and then you say and here's my character and it's twice the size or three times the size what have you so i was thinking on those levels how can my stuff all be part of the same universe if some of them are one to 50, some are one to 35, some are one to, you know, one to 25, whatever. I wanted to make things at different scales because things work to different models. And there was also this idea of accuracy going, how perfect is it? How, how much is it exactly realistic, you know, and, 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 and that sort of thing. And I was thinking, why do people have miniatures and models in the first place? And the moment, It cracked for me was when I thought, "What if these are never supposed to be the real thing? What if these are actually always being presented as maquettes, as if they are illustrating a story, like in a museum? So if you go to a museum and you see, like, you know, a a, a, you know, a model of a Roman town, or uh, a beautiful model of like a warship, or something like that." you look at it and says, hey, this is what the warship looked like or this is what the Roman city looked like. You don't for a second think, oh, it's it's not realistic because that tree wouldn't be there or that looks a little bit like that. You just go, oh, that's cool, and it, it, you, you just enjoy the story being told to you as part of that. And with that, it just liberated me from the idea of having to be uh, accurate to a set of rules that would actually confine me. It meant I could open up and I could do anything because – if I, if these were all maquettes in a museum, then you can say, well, this is what we think it looked like. But, you know, we don't know, but this is probably what it looked like. And so the natural route for me for the storytelling was imagining that this is some museum far, far, far in the future, looking back on a period of time. And that's when the idea of the Museum of the Anthropocene came from because, like many people, I'm curious about this time. You know, we're, we're facing this idea of... Climate change and all of those sort of um, sort of apocalyptic predictions and things, which suddenly don't seem quite as sci-fi and seem quite sort of terrifyingly real. And the problem is that when you're in a moment in time, you can't really you you can't really see the wood for the trees. You you, you know, you you need to have that sort of outside context. So I thought if we look back on the Romans now or the Egyptians, we look back with you know two thousand years of hindsight and say you know how could they have not realized that this was problematic or whatever and i thought what will they think in you know four or five thousand years if you go into a museum and it's the museum of the anthropocene it's about humans effect on the planet you would go into the museum and it would be saying hey the planet was great and everything was really good and then everything got really you know uh, messed up and it was humans who did it, and they'd say, "Didn't they realise what they're doing?" I'd say, "Yes, they did," but they still did it anyway, and they were trying, but they didn't. And I don't know. I think I think it, I thought it would make an interesting idea of something that we've all seen a lot of sci-fi, um, post-apocalyptic stuff, it's sort of Mad Max worlds and all those sorts of things. And I just thought, what if you had something that was sort of a bit emotionless? wasn't Was just kind of saying, "Well, you know, this is." This was what life was like then, and then and then things got really bad, and then uh and then everyone was trying to scrape by, and um you know people needed all the things they needed to sustain life and then things improved and I just thought if you put it way in the future, you could have it sort of looking back and you could start to tell stories within that and that's the thing that's been most exciting for me is whenever I'm making an object, I'll go, "I don't know what this is." And then suddenly it starts to become something in my head, and I think, well, why would that exist in the first place? And then I get to start to tell stories, and then when I finally present my pieces on Instagram or I put them in the on my website, I write a little museum sort of guide, as it were, of saying this is what this piece represents, this is what it was, this is what it did, and because you can imagine they might not necessarily be totally accurate, um, I thought that could be quite fun. It's like, you know, if you find something from. The Roman era and say, we think this is what it was used for. You don't know for certain, but you can have a bit of fun there and and um speculate. So it sort of leaves the door open for audiences to look at it and imagine what they want it to be, as well as allowing me to sort of have a bit of fun and say, Well, it could be this, you know, might not be, but this is what we think it was and this is how we think it
0: looked. All right, that's actually quite interesting. And actually, there's this uh, kind of trend. that I there's uh, actually a genre I recently found that it's kind of like you know near to one of my favorite niches that I really like in like fiction, and it's called solar punk. I don't know if you've yeah. heard of it yet or not. Yeah, uh, but here's the thing the, the, the specific genre that I want to you know make artwork from and I really like, I don't know that it's not there yet, I haven't seen it anywhere, but there's like you know it's going to be a new thing, I think. Basically, what the thing I like is like a mix of solar punk and post-urbanism, something like that. It's even a genre in architecture. Basically, all right, let me explain. Imagine a post-apocalyptic messed up world that, you know, everything is broken. Everything is like, you know, destroyed by war. But like a couple hundred thousand years later, life emerges out of it. Like, I think it... A good example i can tell is the end of wall e where it's a dusty messed of or and just then then there's plants growing everywhere and there's balloon mm-hmm. then in my head there's balloons there's you know kids playing around in like you know the corpse of a, i don't know not corpse that's actually not a technical good word to use like you know basically the hunk of metals of robots yeah. that was there like you know th- those are sort of yes. a colorful yeah. post-apocalyptic pulse- world basically
1: Mm. It's, it's funny because um one of my pieces i've got here i'm getting him ready for exhibition i've got a little uh robot fella that i've been on, oh, um, nice. and he's sort of you know doing some gardening and there's something about little robotic characters because i was mainly doing the the ships and i was all about how did people travel and get around and people being soul traders and i thought it'd be fun to make some little robots so and I was running through the storyline going, oh, what if, you know, post-apocalyptic and then and then a lot of humanity has died and but the robots that were there to serve humanity have been left to their own devices and then after a while they get bored, so they start planting gardens and going fishing and just, you know, messing around. I went through this whole storyline and I went, Oh, it's woolly. It's it's just woolly. You know, and I realized that the post-apocalyptic solar punk genre Worley basically did it in that is that is it in kind of a nutshell beautifully you know but it's sort of it i think what the point they kind of make and that's very much the sort of idea of the approach to my pieces and to the museum of the anthropocene is that you, you know it is possible for us to get out of this and it is possible that the future actually will be very bright and there'll be very good things in future but the question is, how close do we need to get to the current way of being and systems and and, and life as we know it being stripped away? You know, At which point do you say, we're going to now move towards the better future? Is it where we are now and then we change course? Is it that we don't successfully change course and actually it is very unpleasant for the next two, three hundred years? And then... At which point people go, hmm, maybe it would be a good idea to start living more sustainably or what have you. You know, I think that I think that's why the idea of looking back with kind of hindsight is sort of interesting. I think that this um, this this notion of you know, the earth you know you know, the earth wants to run itself. It it, it is balanced, you know. <clears throat> things want to grow you know the 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 it's it's the way that we use the planet and resources is not natural for it it's for this moment in time and things will be and should be different in future but we're still completely operating on a system that is based on you know a way of thinking a way of living that's been in existence since the industrial revolution, and that's you know that's understandable you know i I'm, I'm kind of the same like we say let's get rid of you know we we kind of can't grasp the idea of saying what if we didn't have you know electricity and cars and all these sorts of things you know we we kind of we want the stuff that we have because it's useful and it keeps us warm and dry and feeds us and gets us from a to b and it's troublesome to us to think that there are some things we can change to make them more sustainable so they won't um destroy the planet and there are other things you'd say maybe you just maybe we just don't have that anymore it's just something that we won't be able to have again in future and so the idea of a world of society in which i think that, i think that's that, that that idea of sort of post apocalyptic worlds everything sort of stripped away and and people um People can't really imagine what it would be to live in that sort of thing. I think people like to play with that genre. Um, but, you know, it's – it's. It, I mean, one, one of the things I became aware of as well was we keep talking about this. It's a very Western world-oriented thing, you know. So, so much of the world lives in poverty and lives without those sorts of resources anyway, and we sort of you – know, oh, no, it's terrible, this. And it's still, you know, the richest 1% of the world that's causing – the largest amount of climate change and emissions all those sorts of things so you know it's a it's a very it's very tricky situation but you know I don't want to get to you know I I certainly don't have answers for these things but I think artistically I think I thought it would be interesting to play with the idea of a sort of ghost of Christmas future a sort of idea of well this is interesting but actually mix it with fact as well so my hope my ambition for an for a solo exhibition to this is to make it the museum as if you you know it's, it's like an immersive storytelling experience and you come in and when you leave you should kind of leave with a sense of going this was of course a fictionalized account of a future yet to come but actually there is real stuff in there that shows you you know this is where things are progressing and this is where things will get to at some point. And I think that could be a very interesting uh, artistic thing to play with.
0: All right. And um, how does your design process usually go anytime you want to start working on a new project? Like what is the structure of your pipeline of your work usually looks like?
1: Um, it, it usually, I, I usually make most of my items from... Uh, cast-off materials or, or, um, or what might otherwise be scrap materials. And I usually start with a central thing that's going to make the basis of a piece. So, for example, in my studio here I have at the moment. Um, this is the body from an old um, mixer, a kind of um, – I think it's like a sort of soup mixer type thing. And I have some little figures here. And when I looked at this and took it apart – I don't know about you, but I thought that looks uncannily like some sort of a futuristic hover yeah. bike or something. So I spend a while putting characters in and thinking where might they go. And so thinking, well that might be a sort of little cockpit area and then sort of putting some ideas together. I'll do a few sketches for things, um, just to play with some ideas. Often just to see I guess which way up it might go um you know if i took you know got something like this which is a sort of large tin and i think well it could go that way or it could go that way and i sort of sketch out a few ideas and then start introducing objects that i have in the studio to it and often i'll have things which i've had for a while that i think oh that'll work well with that and i've sort of described it like doodling in 3d i don't really have any particular plan where it's going it sort of starts to evolve in front of you and it's a bit like uh it's all like doing a jigsaw when you don't have the picture on the box when i pick up an item if i go right i need a round thing here i'll go through my drawers and i've got loads and i've got drawers full of this is just full of lots of round things old bits of camera and lenses and all those sorts of things like that and as soon as i find a thing which just fits it it looks like it was meant to be there. So I go, aha, that's it. That's, that's those two were supposed to go together. So start adding little bits and pieces. And then there's another one I've got in the way and I've sort of got as far as putting in loads of little details and engine things like that, but I'm sort of stuck cause I'm trying to find the perfect thing to fit on the back there ah. and to do the cockpit. But, um, but yeah and then eventually they evolve and the final i mean really what i want to try to do is get all the elements together as quickly as possible because the painting for me is the most exciting part and that's where it really then turns into a real thing majority of my work why it lends itself to a post-apocalyptic thing is I, I really love rot and rust and decay um i just find it interesting aesthetically and uh, um it, it, that's the point where it suddenly becomes a real thing um that's of the most exciting moment. So, so yeah. And um, the other part in the process, which I'm sort of, I'm in the middle of one right now. Um, you can see behind me there, which I'm getting ready for this submarine, which I'm getting ready for exhibition is mounting them on the base. And when I started making my work, I would just put them on a sort of black plinth. And uh, then I'd put them with a piece of steel rod or a piece of wooden rod and then I started learning about using acrylic rods to mount things so they look like they're floating. And um, then I was putting some stuff out online, and I put some stuff up on uh, on Twitter and Reddit and places like that, and people were saying, oh, you should put a base on it. I'm saying, oh, well, it does have a base. They're like, no, no, like a diorama base. And I wasn't sure about that at, all at first because I would thought, well, these are like museum miniatures. Do I want to make them like their um, miniatures? Um you know like they're, like their actual sort of little stories what have you but you know i have to say that it just gives you an opportunity for an extra piece of storytelling which really lifts the whole thing uh it's fun for me to do i really enjoy that part of the process and it just for something which you know it, its whole existence is as a little machine you know most of the stuff i do is is mechanical things whether they're little robots or they're ships or vehicles or what have you um And then it gives me the opportunity to do something a bit organic. I can do things with rock and plants and trees and things like that. So it just sort of gives you a nice little bit of contrast. And in the case of this one this the submarine was just on a black base and then i wanted to mount it so it looks like it's crossing the sea floor because the idea is it's like it's under the water sort of finding scrap and it's very much a scavenging society the world that i've built for uh for the museum of the anthropocene so what i'm doing at the moment is having loads of fun i've put loads of rock and coral and stuff under there but the, the corals all bleached white and sort of you know it's all all uh very uh looking very dead and then I'm putting loads and loads of props of just stuff that's sunk under the sea, so kind of old mangled sofas. And I'm using a lot of old um, bits of miniatures from previous theatre sets and things that I can uh, reuse as trash. So, yeah, I'm you know i interested by trash and things that are thrown away. What can I say? It's sort of all sorts of bits and pieces. And now the studio is completely full to the brim with things that I'm storing, knowing that I'll want to turn it into something someday. Uh, there aren't, to be honest, there aren't enough hours in the day for me to come in and make all the things I want to make. I've got about nine, eight or nine pieces actively on the go in front of me right now. Um, but I've got about 20, 30 kind of in my head that I want to get onto afterwards. And I've started sort of putting pieces together saying, I think that'll go with that, but I, uh, I have to uh, make sure i finish i have to make sure i finish some before i start new ones that was always a problem is i'd get excited starting a new one and then uh wouldn't finish the old one and uh i think sometimes keeping the momentum going and just uh getting it all the way to the end is a really key part of the process and uh, if you stall you can sometimes have pieces of work that hang around for quite a while but uh but it's quite cool as well and i'm remounting things i've got this huge sort of trawler in front of me that i'm uh remounting on a new base and i'm really excited about being able to make that part of a new storyline and put other things around it so you know we all uh, all artists uh, then improve and uh, i think there's a moment in which you sort of you, you you have to be happy with knowing that something is good enough where you are at that point in time and know that moving on down the road you know that things will you might look back and say oh that's what i was doing then and this is so much more improved but uh i think if you're if you're happy with it and the the viewer is happy with it then you should just be uh satisfied with that i suppose
0: all right and well actually oh, all right sorry i just remembered something yeah i think like you know those episodes of like you know um like uh, like fake like fake like Alzheimer type things you have like I just had one right now when <laughs> I just quickly remembered something I need to ask Do you also what kind of color do you use for like you know coloring your models do you Use acrylic paint or
1: I use I use a whole variety of them I um I have um I mean I I really I literally mean that you know I I often will use just normal spray paints as the base color um I'd quite like trying to use quite bright colors i had this thing that i didn't want to go too much towards um too to kind of dark uh, kind of blacks and browns and things like that so i generally paint them in sort of bright greens and blues and pinks and stuff like that and then start rusting it down so it's often a spray color um and then i have uh, enamel that i use um i have acrylic paint uh, I, use, I don't use oil paint much except that I found oil paint very good for doing, um, you can do a lot of weathering with oil paint cause you can then manipulate it and sort of work it into cracks and things like that. So, uh, I do always use a bit of a uh, bit of oil paint when I'm doing the weathering part of the process. I have uh, specialized patina paints. I have airbrush paints. Um, I use silver pens. Um, I have weathering powders. I mean, I'm a little bit of a – I have to say I'm a bit of a uh, tools and stuff kind of addict as well. So as soon as I learn about a new tool or a new product, I'll generally buy it to see what it can do. So uh, if I, I, I sort of tend to span across a lot of different media. If someone says, oh, I usually use oils or acrylics, whatever, I use a little bit of everything. Um, I'd say mainly for the base colors – for the fixed colors, spray paints and acrylics. And then I usually save oils and other things like that for, uh, weathering and detailing and rusting and all that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. That's actually kind of interesting because the reason I asked that, because I like, it's kind of funny story, like about like a week or two weeks ago, like I live in a studio apartment, like a really cramped studio apartment, like those complexes that there's a studio apartments upon a studio apartments. And yeah. Like the flat above me they're they're kind of there they I think new tenants entered the flat, and their basic pipe had like a little bit of a problem, and my house like you know was uh, getting flooded with water, like you know it was yeah. really bad, okay, and so what I had to do was you know put like a pot under the thing that was leaking and you know and basically, the repairman said that he, he can't do anything right now. He will come tomorrow morning. And I was like, oh, God, what should I do now? So I did the least I could do. I First, I put a blanket, then put the pot. Then in the pot, I put like three rolls of shredded toilet paper in them so it could absorb as much water as possible. And in the morning, I, I saw that the pipe was fixed because there was no leak. I was like, all right, good. But then I started cleaning up all the mess. And I looked at that pot filled with like you know wet toilet paper, and I was pissed. I was like, I wasted all of this for nothing. Then I just started like grabbing it all and just squished them together, and I was like, hmm, it kind of has a nice form. And so I just made a paper mache out of it. And what it and the next step was I bought acrylic paint because I, I thought you know acrylic paint is water soluble and it's good for paper. And I kind of did this. I know it kind of seems silly, but oh. I made, I made like okay. a sculpture out of it. Like you know let me. Yeah, like actually, the textures is kind of nice, you know, mm. for a paper machine. Yeah, and yeah, I just kind of went well. With it. I this was like my first project I did, and you yeah, know, mm. I know looks a bit cursed. I know, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Yes, yeah, sir, on. No, you, you please. All right. And the thing was, uh, I was kind of like, you know, encouraged to, you know, I'm storing all my waste papers because I want to store them all and make my next. I want to actually make a paper mache spaceship, you know, because Mm. I also saw your stuff and, you know, I was kind of inspired.
1: Yeah, I think I think that that, that's sort of how I got started with these things is because I was working in model making anyway for theater design and it was just a thing you had to do most of the theater models that i was working with are made out of mount boards you know basically paper and card and there are always things which were sort of annoying to cut out and they have a late there's the company uh the laser cutter here was being used by a company and they would cut out discs and things but they didn't need them so they'd pop them out and throw them in a bin and i'd be like oh these are useful i'd sort of take them out of the bin and go well this is useful because cutting a circle is a pain so i'll keep a stock of these and it's like having my own little lego kit if i need to make a little mini table or something i can just grab it and assemble it and then that led me to think well there are so many things that you you know you bring together you know i consider kind of what i do with these pieces sort of like what my one might call assemblage art you know like i don't make a huge amount of stuff for these pieces it's quite rare for me to make things from scratch specifically it's all about introducing pieces together until they fit and that's very satisfying for me because it's like you know, I look around all the bits and pieces of stuff I have here and knowing that any part of it will suddenly join something and it becomes something that has more meaning because I've actually, you know, put the energy into making it and what have you. I mean I used to hate just seeing waste and stuff going into the bin and that sort of thing. And um you know, I'm certainly you know, I have more than enough stuff here. I've got drawers and drawers and drawers full of things. But I started to hone that towards things that were really interesting. So during the process i suppose one thing i didn't really say about the process of making things is that i'll have to start with very general shapes very broad shapes of saying it's you know it's a ship and it's a square for the middle and it's a circle for the engine underneath or you know it's a kind of circle here or it's got this here and this is where the person goes and then i start working to finer and finer detail. So I'll start by putting on panels, which are just big shapes. And I think, well, what is that? Oh, maybe it's like an air intake. Okay, maybe it needs a little bit of a, you know, a grill on it and I'll sort of find the right bit and uh, and all those sorts of things. And I think that, yeah, knowing that you can take something that would otherwise go to waste and then turn it into something um, that is that has a kind of storytelling potential and, and artistic potential, I think is very it's very empowering and you know, the, the first thing I made when I was doing this, I sort of secretly was doing this because I was doing theater. And I in the meantime I was making these little sculptures. I took a sort of deodorant bottle and it had a kind of interesting oval shape to it that is very reminiscent of sort of star Wars ships, no sort of things. And I thought, Hmm, that little cap at the back could be an engine and that could be there. And I just started to put pieces together and I stuck these little sort of what you might call greeble pieces all over it. And I thought when I finished it, I thought this is the, this is the best thing I've ever made. I love this. And what's interesting is that relatively speaking probably wasn't too long ago. That was probably around, I don't know, 20, 20, 14 or 15, something like that. And if you look at it now compared with the work I'm doing, it, it, it's so terrible. And it's also something that I thought I was being incredibly original. And now I realize that as I've discovered as I move forward, there is a whole host of wonderful, amazing creative artists who have done the same process as as me. And I realised that this is a thing that's worth exploring. So the piece I'm making now, I mean, I've you know, the first one I made, the jump between Something that I first made, and what I've currently got they you know they don't really compare in terms of the finish for me, but that's probably only the sort of twentieth or thirtieth iteration of a piece, so I just thought if I keep making these by the time I get to the fiftieth one or the sixtieth one or the hundredth one or the thousandth one or whatever, they'll have advanced to a point that I don't even know where it's going to go now, and that was very exciting so. I sort of keep all this stuff in perpetuity and know it'll become useful at some point. Um, and I'm sure I would have, you know, done the same sort of process as you, thinking, right, well, there's something I can do with this that's useful. What can I do with this? What can I, you know, where can I take it into a creative space? So, um, so yeah, it's, um, you know, it's not, a, it's not a perfectly closed system, but it means that pretty much anything that I bring along, I'll look at it and think, there's an interesting shape there. There's something that I can use. And these, uh, the, the main thing, these processes are very similar to the processes that have been done by model makers for the film and TV industry for decades. You know, this is all of, this is basically all the stuff they did on the original Star Wars and the, um, you know, Alien and all those sort of wrong Cobb concepts and things like that. It's it's all, you know, what they call kit bashing. It's taking stuff that, Exists uh, for one thing, and then putting it together in a new way, and hey presto, you've made a sort of a sci-fi thing. And um, yeah, I think it's very interesting to make something that doesn't exist in the real world, but you can still understand it. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah.
0: All right, and an interesting question that you know a lot of guests might you know find it a bit you know uh, hard, which is. Who are your favorite artists and designers that have inspired you the most?
1: Um, I think that the, I suppose within the work I'm doing now, I mean, you mentioned Ian, Ian McKay. I know, uh, I feel like I'm probably mispronouncing that, but he, he really, you know, aesthetically, I think that's a real benchmark for the sort of thing that uh, artists like myself Uh, aspire to because he he creates something that is both recognizable from the real world and then gives it this lovely sci-fi twist that feels lived in and feels worn and doesn't feel shiny and new. So I think that working with so artists like Ian McKay's concept artist and artists like yeah, like Ron Cobb who did a lot of the original Alien, I was really taken with loads and loads of the sort of sci-fi aesthetics from things like uh, blade runner and uh, and red dwarf and stuff like that when i was a kid which was very just felt an alien you know felt very real and very uh, and very um uh, tangible i guess um the artist i mean i'd say someone like joshua street smith who is a miniaturist he's probably the first artist i saw who actually was pioneering the idea of miniatures as an art form and it wasn't a miniature f- for a uh, for like a hobbyist thing, it wasn't for like a war game thing. It was a making a sculpture, like a very detailed sculpture of a, a, a physical place, which then um, was being uh, sold as a piece of art. And that that was I. He was the first artist I recall seeing and going, ah, th- you know, that there is uh, there's a world in which we can um, use uh, use miniatures as a as Storytelling for a piece of art rather than just uh, a practical thing is it's just a purely aesthetic thing um, and other artists who do things like Slinkachu, he did this he's done a lot of these amazing uh, I think he it, it, someone like Slinkachu is a real kind of pioneer I think in making miniatures and sort of wry witty miniatures and combining it with photography and making things which were then very shareable things which you know that sort of work could go around. Uh, Facebook or, or, uh, uh, you know, go Reddit or those sorts of things. And you don't have to, it, it's not art. You have to, you don't have to get it, you know, like you get it immediately, you know, you can understand it on several different levels, but it's not something that you're looking at thinking, you know, oh, I don't quite understand this. You can understand it, you know, straight away. Um, and uh, otherwise, I mean, I've interviewed, I interviewed Harry uh, Arling, who goes by Cosmetronics on Instagram, and he genuinely, I think he was probably, I was really thrilled to speak to him because, you know, I, there are many fantastic artists um, on Instagram who I follow, who I'm really inspired by, but he, the the level of detail with his sculptures, I mean, they're just so beautiful, and I think that. Um, someone, if you take someone like uh, like Harry, and there's also Stéphane Allure, who does these beautiful—I'm probably mispronouncing that—French, uh, I think French artist, possibly Belgian, but he he makes these really fantastic sculptures that, again, sort of sort of scrap bashing pieces of old uh, old engineering, pieces of old tech, and then makes these really lovely figures. And the things about them is that they're very uh, caricatured. They sort of remind me of sort of like. Tintin or something like that they or or, or asterix they've got a kind of very beautiful kind of uh sort of uh sort of french style to them and and they seem a little bit old-fashioned and uh they they're just very unique and very beautiful and they're all about making physical objects as well so almost almost like um i don't sort of almost like caricatures you know it's sort of taking things and moving into that sort of more caricature direction so um so yeah, those are the sorts of artists who, if I if I look at where I've gone with my journey, they're people I sort of looked at as like little footholds of going, oh yeah, that's interesting to me, and that's interesting to me, and that's somewhere that I might be able to find my way within that, doing what I hope is uniquely me, but sort of, you know, circling the same airport as those guys in terms of their their aesthetic interests, and. Um, I think what's interesting is when one starts as an artist, one wants to be unique often. And there's a kind of terror or a fear of thinking, what if I make something It's too similar to someone else? Or you might, I had this where I, I'd see someone's work. And for a while, if I found someone who did work that I thought was very similar to mine, I'd go, oh no, they've already done it. It's already done. I can't do it because they've done it. And it's ridiculous because, you know, if you, if you are a portrait artist and paint, portraits in oils or you paint still lifes, you don't think, oh, well, someone else has already done that. So I shouldn't do it. You do it anyway. And I think it's because using the, I think miniatures as art, it it still feels fairly new to appreciate that just as an artistic form. And so I think that the fact there are so many people doing it all of a sudden is just testament to the fact that people are creative and makers and want to do things. And it, it's it's an art it, it's an art form in its own right that's really kind of growing and um there's going to be a, there's an exhibition i'm taking part in in april called small is beautiful that took place in paris last year and they're coming to london and that is just a showcase of miniaturists of artists who who will make miniatures and so uh the fact that you can have events like that now is pretty amazing so um so yeah those are the sorts of artists that uh, originally inspired me along the way but it's yeah, it's it, there's a lot of various influences from uh, from when I was a kid, and uh, it's hard to kind of pinpoint which ones sort of led to where
0: I am now. All right. Well, we've reached the final question of the podcast and final section of the podcast, which is called Final Words. All right, let me explain. <laughs> in, in this window of time and opportunity that we have right now, you have an opportunity right now to from a human standpoint, from another human to another human being. And that another human being is any single person who is watching or listening to this podcast in the future, at any point in the future. In in this moment, what would you say? Or do you have any words? Or, you know, it could be one message. It could be a couple of messages. Just anything. Free stuff. Let's go.
1: Um, well, I guess one of the things that I... Talk. I've talked about before. I used to. I used to teaching. um, uh, Teaching model making um, at the theatre school, and one of the things I always said was, "You sort of have to." I call it making a bad pancake. So, like you know, when you're making pancakes, the first couple always really suck, and you really. They're just terrible and they burn and they go all over the place. By the time you get to third or fourth, you're sort of getting into the hang of it. And, you know, after you've made nine or ten, you're like, okay, this is pretty good now. But if you get put off by the bad pancakes, then you never really get anywhere. So one of the things I was trying to encourage people to do in any artistic practice is make a bad pancake and kind of enjoy doing art really badly because that thing of getting into the studio, and I've had it, you know, countless times where I think – when it's something you have to do, you can get kind of crippled with it. So I found making this artwork, which initially was a hobby and has now become the main focus of my, uh, of my work, if I didn't have to do it for anything, for any reason, I could just fiddle around with it and it didn't really matter where it went. And before I knew it, it had gone into a really interesting direction. Whereas if I sit down and it's like homework, if it's like, oh, I have to do this, I would find it really difficult to get started and I certainly found that in my theatre work though when I have to do this and you get crippled with fear. You'd start making something and go this looks rubbish, this is terrible and you get really worried and concerned about it and that's kind of like the bad pancake. You sort of go actually I would never get to that successful point if I wasn't willing to make some really rubbish art and then get to that better place. So I guess the only thing've I've, the, the thing that i 've found and I would encourage uh, people to try and embrace is kind of know what your bad pancakes are whether it 's in art or whether it 's anything just go i 'm going to do this, and the results might be terrible, shockingly terrible, but I think you need to actually enjoy that part of it and say it 's the fact that i 'm doing it that 's the most important thing, and if there 's any way you can take the pressure off yourself in order to actually just go. I'm going to sit down and noodle away at this thing because I'm interested in it and see where it goes. Then, you know, that, that's the, that's the most I can encourage someone to take. Cause I think that, you know, it's, if you're doing anything creative, you know, the, the, the world doesn't know what you've got until you make it. And it's not necessarily that you're looking saying, ah, oh, here's a gap in the market. I'm looking to fill. It's got to come from you. And, it'll only come from you and be something that you do brilliantly if it's a hundred percent, you know, something that's honest to you, something that you can really get behind. So yeah, make a bad pancake, go out there and, you know, just make something, do it really badly and then go, right. That was version one. What's version two. And, you know, by the time you get to version 50, it will probably be in a place that, you know, has gone beyond what you could have imagined originally.
0: That is actually solid proper advice. Thank you so much. That was actually a really good analogy for that. Oh, good. And, yeah. um, all right. Uh, thank you so much for coming by. Where can people contact you if they had any question? Is your Instagram account okay I, if I put it in the caption? I
1: I have a website which is dreamyox.com. Yeah. But put that I would in the caption say as well. Yeah, I say by far and away, Instagram is the easiest and best place to find me. So it's at DreamyoxArt. And um, uh, if you want to drop me a message on there or have any questions or anything like that um please drop a message there or and you can email uh dreamyoxart at gmail.com but that's all if you go to my instagram it's got a link to the website it's got a link to the email so you can find everything you want through there
0: all right awesome and i put them in the captions as, captions as well and with that being said, thank you to anyone who tuned in and listened to this episode. I hope you all had a great day and enjoyed this episode as well, like I did. And by the way, if there's any comments or suggestions, just leave them down in the comment section below. As always, whether on cast box on YouTube or Instagram, or even shoot me a message on the Career Podcast the Instagram page, it's fine. I'll read them all. And thanks again for coming by. And take care, everyone, till next episode, which is going to be recorded in the next 10 minutes. No joking. <laughs> so, yeah, have a nice day. Bye.